Well, this morning I'm going to speak on the topic of temptation. And it would be hard to think of a more practical and timelessly relevant topic than that of temptation. It was there at the beginning and it's been there all the way through. So let's see what James has to say on this topic today. So if you turn uh, in your Bibles, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, it is said that each of us is only as strong as our weakest moment. The young child lifting up the lid of the lolly jar when they think no one's looking. The child lying to their parents about their whereabouts. The student copying an assignment or sneaking a peek during an exam. The teenager keen to show their mates uh, how much they enjoy a beer or two or four. The young mum slipping something into their handbag that she just can't afford but can't resist either. The business owner who fails to declare some income on his tax return. Or the loving family man or woman caught in adultery. Temptation doesn't play favourites and it isn't fussy about its victims. It cares not a bit for race or for age or for gender or for social status. It is masterful in disguise and it is always ready to ensnare. Temptation comes in many guises. Lying. Cheating, stealing, fraud, gluttony, vanity, sexual sin, ambition, envy, rage, revenge, greed, greed for money, love of power. Christians face all of these temptations just as everyone else does. But there is one temptation that is unique only to Christians and yet it hardly ever gets a mention when we talk about temptation. And that is the temptation 
to turn you back on your faith and turn you back on Christ. And I think if we examine the context into which James is writing today, I believe that this is likely the overriding issue that he's addressing. Verse 1 tells us that James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And throughout this letter, he repeatedly addresses his audience as brethren. He doesn't see any need to preach the gospel to them. You read the book of James, you will hardly find Jesus' name mentioned. I think he gets a couple of mentions, but not many. He doesn't need to preach the gospel to them because these were already Christians. And they knew the gospel. And they were scattered among the nations because after the stoning of Stephen, persecution had broken out in Jerusalem. And the Jews had been forced to flee. The Jewish Christians had been forced to flee. In addition, around this time, the Roman Emperor Claudius had driven all the Jews out of Rome. Their businesses were being boycotted. Their children were being thrown out of the education system. Times were extremely tough. And so we see here a group of people forced out of their homeland because of their faith in Christ and yet persecuted by the, the Romans for their Jewishness. Times could not have been tougher for them. And so James writes this extremely practical little field manual addressing this particular issue of temptation, the temptation that these people would have faced to turn their back on everything that they knew. And it's not only a very practical little field manual for them, it's a very practical little field manual for all of us about how to live an authentic Christian life in a hostile environment. Now, you'll notice if you look back over last week's passage and compare it with this one, depending on the version of the Bible that you use, the different translations, you'll find the words trial, test, temptation, and they generally appear interchangeable. And in the Greek, it's all from the same word, this word pirasmos, which means trial, test, or temptation. And it generally refers to a test that challenges the strength of one's faith or challenges one's moral character. And so with that in mind, what's the first thing that James chooses in this letter to tell these suffering, scattered Jewish Christians? It is that tough times can have one of two outcomes. Now last week, Pastor Bruce spoke to us about the positive outcome that tough times can have. Tough times can lead to perseverance. Perseverance leads to a maturity in faith. That's the upside. This week I get the downside because tough times or trials can also lead us to be tempted. Temptation, James says, leads to sin and sin leads to death. And I believe it's particularly this temptation to turn our back on Christ or on things that we know are of Christ 
when we face tough times that James is addressing. In both cases, the trials or the tough times are generally beyond our control. But the direction that they take us in is entirely up to us. Persevere and climb the ladder towards maturity in faith or give in to temptation and free fall downwards towards sin and death. It's okay to struggle with tough times, says James. It is normal to struggle with tough times. But tough times don't have to lead to temptation. But if we give in to temptation, inevitably, even greater tough times are ahead for us. Temptation can jump out and hit you in the face or it can quietly sneak up on you. It can go virtually unnoticed until it's almost too late. But one thing is for certain, says James, all of us will face tough times. He doesn't say if you are tempted. He says when you are tempted. So we're all going to face temptation at some stage in our lives. So we better be ready for it when it comes. And when it happens, says James, no one should say, God is tempting me. And this is called the blame game. And we all know very well how to play the blame game. We learn it from a very early age. In our house, if something gets spilt on the carpet and we say, who did that? You'll hear two answers. Shyla did it, Rain did it and they'll both be pointing in different directions. We all know how to do it. You don't have to be taught how to blame others for your problems. And as adults, we do the same thing. If we crash into the car in front of us, it's not because we're bad drivers, it's because the person in front slammed on their brakes. If we fail an exam, it's not because we didn't study, it's because we had a bad teacher. If we don't have a lot of friends, it's not because we're disagreeable and difficult to get on with. It's because everyone else is disagreeable and difficult to get on with. When tough times come or bad things happen, it has to be somebody's fault and generally it's not our fault. And Adam, the first man, he was an expert at this blame game. Deliberately and with full knowledge of all the consequences, he broke God's law. And yet when God questioned him about it, he not only blamed Eve, but he blamed God, saying, that woman that you put here, she made me do it. And we're very quick to do likewise. We imagine that because we are Christians and try to live godly lives, we should somehow be immune from all earthly suffering. No one in our family should become seriously ill. Certainly none of them should die unless they've lived a long and very happy life. And we should, of course, be free from all major calamity, such as troubled teenage children, marital problems, financial ruin, natural disasters and the like. We like to think that our faith is like a giant get-out-of-jail-free card that will protect us from all of life's problems. And it is not. 
Christians experience all of these problems just like everyone else does. And the key to understanding why is a matter of perspective. And I'm going to diverge a little bit here um, to revisit a diagram that I've used before because this, I think, is a critical issue for all Christians to get their heads around. If you haven't been asked by a non-Christian why does God allow suffering in the world, then probably you need to get a little bit more vocal about your Christianity because many of us have been asked that question many, many times and it's something that we need to be able to answer, not only for the non-Christians but for ourselves. When we come to these trials and times of suffering, we need to know the answer to this question, why does God allow suffering in the world? If we don't, when we reach these times, we will be tempted to turn our backs on God and to do the things that he would not have us do. So all of us live in the here and now. We are right here along this line here. And some, at some point along that line, Christ came into the world and as he did, he inaugurated what we know of as the kingdom of God. And all of us who are believers have tasted of that kingdom. He said, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news is being preached. What's the good news? The good news, he says, is of the kingdom of God. And everyone is forcing their way into it. What evidence do we have that this kingdom arrived? Well, in part, it is by the miracles that Jesus did. For example, Jesus said himself, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Have you ever wondered why Jesus performed miracles? Did he do it just because he was a nice man and wanted to heal people? That's not the reason why Jesus did it. Did he do it to draw attention to himself and attract a crowd? Well, we know that's not the reason because when he healed people, he often told them to not to tell anyone when they went away. And when people asked for a sign, he rebuked them for asking for that sign. The miracles of Jesus speak very specifically to the people among whom he walked. And they spoke of his identity and they also showed people what the coming kingdom was going to be like. So Isaiah spoke of this time when Christ would come. He said, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap, leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus began his ministry on earth. If you remember John the Baptist, when he was in prison, he was hearing about the things that the Messiah was doing and he sent his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus didn't say yes and he didn't say no. What he told 
the disciples of John was to go back and report to John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, he said, everything that the prophet Isaiah said has now been fulfilled. The kingdom is here. And if you want to know what the kingdom is like, then look to Jesus because his miracles tell us exactly what the kingdom is like. In it, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no suffering, Satan has no power there, and it's available to everyone equally, regardless of age, gender, wealth, or social status. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come, and by his miracles and teachings, we get a taste of what it's going to be like. And so this kingdom has come, but it's not yet been fully realised. That's not going to happen until Christ comes again. And so we call this the kingdom now, but not yet. And we're living right here in the middle of it, in the age of the church, where the current age overlaps with the age to come. We still live very much in the old world, in the current age, where evil abounds, where Satan is active, but by his Holy Spirit, we're also part of the age to come. We've tasted for it and we long for it to be fully realised. And when Jesus returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But for now, that hasn't happened. And that, in a nutshell, is why bad things happen to good people. Why there is still evil in the world. Because we live in this tension of a kingdom what is now, but not yet. Now, James goes on to give a face to this picture of temptation. He personifies it by likening it to a prostitute's seduction. And within that analogy, he uses two hunting terms. Firstly, by our own evil desires, we are lured he says, or dragged away in some versions, it says. And this is the only time that this word is used in the entire New Testament. And it, it reminds us or it speaks of being dragged away in a fishing net. So that image on the top right there gives us a picture of what this is like. And you can imagine the net coming around the fish and at first they don't really know much about it but slowly as the net tightens and the fish become closer and closer and they realise that they are trapped. So step one, there's our own evil desire. Step two, the net begins to tighten and they're dragged away from a place of safety to a place of danger. Not only are they dragged away, but James says we are enticed. And this is a term that refers to leaving a bait set in a hunting trap to capture wild animals. Now, being a vegetarian and an animal lover, I don't have a lot of hunting stories for you. Um, 
But I can tell you about trapping possums because I have a lot of experience um, in trapping possums. So on the day that Bruce and I moved into our current house, it was about 16 or 17 years, 16 years ago now, we did all the moving ourselves with the help of a few family and friends. And so we were exhausted at the end of that day. Anyone who's recently moved will know what that's like, um, especially if you decide to do it all yourself. And so we collapsed into bed at the end of that move. And it was a freezing night, so Bruce got up out of bed to try and figure out how to get the ducted heating to work. And uh, as we... Uh, he, he got it to work. And as we lay there in bed, this most awful, eye-wateringly pungent smell just filled the entire house. And very quickly we got up and turned off the ducted heating. And then we heard a scream and a shout from downstairs where Bruce's parents, who'd been helping us unpack, were sleeping in a room full of empty boxes. Um, the boxes had started to move by themselves in the middle of the night. Turns out the house we moved into was already occupied by a very large gathering of possums. And they had completely taken over the ducted heating system. They were living in all the wall cavities. They were chewing all night on the woodwork. They scratched about, and they even felt at liberty to move around inside the house in some of the rooms. And they found those empty boxes really quite a lot of fun. So those possums had to go. And so we purchased a trap, and we put some bait in it, and we set it under the house, which is where we thought that they were getting in, because that's where the worst smell was. Um, weeks went by, and it didn't matter wh where we put this trap, we caught nothing. They didn't even go near it, until eventually we relented and called the possum man. And this poor guy had no idea what he was in for in our house. The deal is, he comes, he sets the trap, you ring him when there's something in it, he takes the something away and sets the trap again. And he does this for as long as it takes to get rid of the possums. Usually he does about two visits to a person's house. Well, after coming every day to our house for two weeks and taking away at least one possum every day, sometimes we caught two in the trap at once, the poor man gave up and said, I'll just leave it here if you'll please just take the possums away by yourself. And so we did. 25 possums in all were taken out of our house before our home felt like it was ours. Same house, same trap. We caught nothing. He caught one possum every day for weeks. Because the possum man knew which bait to use. And he knew exactly where to set the trap in the best position to catch the possums. And Satan is an equally skilled hunter. He knows which bait to use for each of us and he knows when and where to set the traps. And a bait has to be attractive, doesn't it? You're not going to catch a fish dangling a raw potato into the ocean. Well, at least I don't think you will. And I don't imagine that the dentists that are among our second service um, people have many people coming in saying, I just couldn't resist the temptation to come back and have some more root canal work done. They probably have lots of patients who couldn't resist the temptation of sugary drinks and lollies and therefore end up at the dentist, but not many are drawn by the temptation of root canal work. 
Now, Bruce and I have five kids, and just occasionally, when they're all otherwise occupied or in bed, we like to pull out some nice quality chocolate, just for a special treat, just occasionally. And it's not the kind of chocolate that you want to share with five kids because they wolf it down and there's nothing left, and you've spent all this money on expensive chocolate that they don't appreciate. So over the years, we have tried many hiding spots for the chocolate. And I can speak from vast years of child-raising experience to tell you that chocolate hidden in the vegetable crisper is never discovered. No child will ever check the vegetable crisper. <laughs> chocolate, our hiding place is gone. You can safely keep it in there for months because no child is ever tempted by the vegetable drawer. So James says there has to be a bait. But a bait alone does not equal temptation. The fish remains free for as long as it continues to swim past that hook. When the fish so desires the bait that it can't resist anymore, that's the point at which it has been enticed and it's dragged away. So for James, two things are necessary, an outward bait and an inward desire. And in the context into which James wrote, which was pre the advent of contraception, conception and childbirth were a much more likely outcome for prostitutes than they are today. And so James says in verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. When bait and desire come together, the sinful thought or action is born. Sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. That is our separation from God. In a physical sense, death is a separation of the soul from the body, but in a spiritual sense, it is our separation from God. What's interesting about this part of the passage is that two different Greek words are translated into the English gives birth. The first means literally bringing forth or producing. So after desire has been conceived, it produces sin. But the second means more literally to cease to be pregnant. Sin, when it is fully grown, ceases to be pregnant and leads to death. Now, you might not think that's a very big difference, but in using this word, James is making a very powerful point because not all pregnancies bring forth a child. In fact, recent research um, presented in the July 2018 edition of New Scientist, so only last year, suggests that miscarriage is actually the most likely outcome of a human pregnancy. Prior to this, we thought that 10 to 20% was the miscarriage rate for human pregnancies. But that doesn't take into account the fact that most miscarriages happen before 12 weeks, and so most of them happen before a woman know, knows that she's actually pregnant. So the report's author, Richard Rice, of the University of California, summarises his findings for the new scientist 
stating that miscarriage is not an abnormality, it is the norm for human pregnancies. So whilst not all pregnancies result in childbirth, all pregnancies do eventually cease. That is the inevitable fact. And that's exactly why James switches to this second word for the second half of verse 15. When sin is fully grown, the inevitable result is death in the sense of our separation from God because of the sin that is not dealt with. And so if we allow the trials of life to lead us to committing sin, to lead us to doing things that we know God would not be happy with, if they lead us to turn our back on God, then there will be no other result. And having gone to great lengths to show that God is not the source of anything evil, now James seeks to show that he is the source of everything good. And he, reminds, he does this by reminding his readers of God's two greatest works, those of creation and of redemption. And in Jewish thought, light represents purity, goodness and truth. Darkness represents deception, evil and falsehood. So by linking God to the creation of the heavenly lights, to the creation of the sun, the stars, the moon... He's saying that everything that comes from God is pure, good and true. And unlike the shifting shadows, which change constantly depending on the time of the day, depending on how many clouds are around, God never changes. He's always the same. And he said of himself, I, the Lord, do not change. The sun gives light... But that amount of light changes throughout the day because of the angle of the sun in the sky. In the middle of the day, when the sun is directly overhead, the day is at its brightest, and those of us that are standing on earth below have no shadow. Then, as the sun starts to set, the amount of light decreases and our shadows become longer and longer. Even the stars are constantly burning up and changing, and the moon reflects back to us a variable amount of light depending on the phase of the moon. On a full moon night, there can be quite a lot of brightness, but when the moon is just a little crescent, of course, it's very dark. And then, of course, both the moon and the sun have eclipses when there's no light at all. God says, James is not like that. James says, God is not like that. In him, there is no darkness and in him there is no change. Or as Albert Barnes, a, a 19th century theologian, puts it, God is as if the sun stood in the meridian at noonday. So while the shadows of life are not caused by God, sometimes our shifting away from his light can bring tough times upon us. Imagine standing directly under a street light. While the light is overhead, no shadow is cast. But move a little to the left or the right, and a shadow is formed. The further you move from the light, the longer the shadow gets, until eventually you're standing in darkness. 
in the tough times and the trials of life, God will not change, but we need to be sure that we haven't shifted our position. Make sure you're standing in the light. Or as James himself says a little later on in chapter 4, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. So by this work of creation, we see God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. But by his work of redemption, we see God as the giver of the greatest gift of all. That through the word of truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, we might receive new life and be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. In effect, we are to be the very first portion of a very great harvest of believers. We are to be a very special part of the crop that has been set aside for God. All Christians have been set aside from the rest of humanity for, for God. Max Licardo says that the Bible is the story of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. In the first, Adam took a fall, and in the second, Jesus took a stand. The trials of life come in many different forms. They're painful and they're uncomfortable, but they need not lead to sin. That choice is ours and ours alone. In the first garden, the first Adam chose to give in to temptation and he brought forth sin. And the fruits of his choice are still evident today in death and guilt and condemnation. In the second garden, the last Adam, Jesus, faced trials. He endured temptation and suffering. But he chose not to give in to temptation, nor to turn his back on the Father. And he brought forth life and righteousness and justification for all who would believe in him. How Jesus triumphed in the face of great temptation and suffering is so simple. You know, people often say that they want to hear messages that are very practical. This example of Jesus is as practical as it comes. Jesus triumphed through scripture and prayer. It's as simple as that. Three times the devil tempted him at the beginning of his ministry. After 40 days with no food, the devil said, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3. He said, man does not live on bread alone. Then he took him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all of their authority and splendor for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to, so worship me and it will all be yours. Jesus replied again from scripture, Deuteronomy 6.13, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil had him stand on the highest place of the temple and said, throw, him, throw yourself off um, because God will send his angels to look after you. 
Jesus again replied with scripture from Deuteronomy 6.16. It says, do not put the Lord your God to test. And then towards the end of his ministry on earth, Jesus again faced temptation, this time in Gethsemane. And this time the example that he leaves us is one of prayer. On reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In both instances, Jesus never took his eyes off the Father. Now, there's a story told about a boy who owned a dog. And periodically the father would test that dog's obedience by putting in front of it a tempting treat and then giving the command no. And the poor dog had to choose whether to obey or disobey the master's command. And how that dog handled itself is a lesson for all of us today. You see, the dog never looked at the food. It would stare directly into the master's eyes. It was almost as if it knew that if it looked at the food, the temptation to eat it would be too much. And so he just stared at his master's face until the command was given. First Adam took his eyes off the father, stared temptation in the face, and it overcame him. The second Adam kept his eyes firmly fixed on the Father and he triumphed in the face of temptation. How about you? When life gets tough, do you persevere and thank God for the opportunity to grow and mature in your faith? Or are you tempted to blame God, either directly or perhaps indirectly by that expectation that because you are a Christian, nothing bad should ever happen to you? Tough times or trials of themselves need not be a bad thing. Sure, they cause suffering and they cause pain, but ultimately the end result is our choice. You can choose to turn your back on God, move out of the light and into the shadows, where you will fall into temptation or sin, or you can choose to stand directly under his light to immerse yourself in scripture, to draw near to him in prayer and to allow perseverance to finish its work that you might be mature and complete in your faith. If you're facing tough times or trials now, allow me to pray for you as we close. Father God, we thank you for this word from James. We thank you for how practical it is. Lord, each of us face tough times. We may not be facing them right now, but Lord, there will be some in this room for whom life is very tough at the moment. And Lord, there is always the temptation to blame you for the things that happen in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this message from James which so plainly speaks to us of the reality of temptation. 
Father, we pray now for those who are going through tough times. Lord, that in these tough times you would be their strength, that they would persevere, that they would not be tempted to turn their back on you or to do the things that your word clearly states that they should not be doing. Lord God, we pray that in these times of trial and testing, Lord, that they will remain very near to you and that they will come out the other side stronger for it, mature in their faith and giving thanks for the times of testing and what it has produced. Amen.